Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, step right up to the Harper's Podcast. Witness the amazing David Hill as he joins me, Violet Luca, for a captivating conversation about sideshows. Listen to the hair-raising tale of carny corruption and murder, and be astounded as Hill traces the history of carnivals, all while balancing their evolving content and social purpose. Gaze in awe as Hill and I explore the carnival's connection to labor and romance, and marvel at the rhetorical backflips as we discuss why we love letting down our guard and playing some slightly rigged games. You can get a subscription to our all-knowing, always-odd, always-entertaining magazine for only $16.97 by visiting harpers.org save. But entry to this conversation is free. You come from carny folk, and your interest in this story is related to your own carny blood. And you, you write about your grandmother, Hazel, and her husband, Eric, who worked as traveling flat store operators, meaning they oversaw a rigged game called, called the Razzle. How and when did you become aware of this job of theirs? And what did it mean to you? Like, is there like a family copy of Nightmare Alley that they gave you at some point, like when you turned 16? It was like, this is this is our business. <laughs> I didn't really fully understand Razzle until I was much older. You know, the Razzle is a, it's an old, old game. And it's actually it's actually played in a lot of different ways. People play it with balls and a box. The way that Eric played it was with darts. He played Razzle with darts, which is kind of an unusual way to, to, to play the Razzle. So I grew up always kind of knowing that they ran a dart concession, a dart game. And I think as a child, I always assumed it was kind of like the throw the dart at the balloon and pop it and get a stuffed animal thing. And it wasn't until I was a little older that it was explained to me what they were really doing was running an elaborate swindle. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did it mean when you found that out? Were you like, that's cool? Yeah, I thought it was cool. I mean, I grew up I grew up around the racetrack and around the carnival and was sort of, you know, always around gamblers, you know, even from a young age. So some of this was all just sort of a fact of life, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> the idea of gambling wasn't anything unusual. Whether or not I thought it was cool when I learned that they were more than just gamblers, but also actually kind of like con artists. Yeah, I <laughs> guess so. I thought it was cool. I mean, they weren't rich, you know, they were they were pretty pretty broke their whole lives and, you know, lived in trailers and and never had much of a pot to piss in. So, you know, I, I can't imagine that the swindling that they did, you know, <laughs> did too much damage out there. <laughs> Well, that, yeah, that's the thing people I think people don't realize about swindles is that you it is actually incredibly hard and it takes a you it's like get rich slow if you get rich at all. It's not get rich quick. It's very rarely get rich. Right. Quick, it's but, like you might as well get a job. Like that's the thing yeah. that's so interesting about it is when I think about how hard Eric and Hazel worked <laughs> to con people out of money, you you know, and how much not only how much effort it took, but you know, really kind of how much intelligence it took to to run a good good razzle or you know i write in my book about other some other cons that hazel was involved in throughout her life i mean it took a lot it took a lot of smarts you know and you you'd think that you could put that to use to make money in a much easier way <laughs> and and less uh you know less risk of going to the pokey <laughs> well you just alluded to hazel's other cons like what else can you tell the, tell us about their carny career obviously you don't have to give away any trade secrets or get into that murder charge, but you know, just a little context. I mean, so Eric ran the game and Hazel was a, a shill. She was a confederate, right? She would pretend to play the game. 
and win money. And that way people would see this pretty little lady winning money and they would think, oh, I, I could win too. So often Hazel would step in, you know, step in to kind of build a tip. That's what they call the crowd, right? A crowd, when you formed a crowd, that was called a tip. And sometimes you wanted a tip and sometimes you didn't. And Hazel would help build a tip to get people interested in the game. Or she'd step in if it looked like things were getting a little hot and she could kind of step in and Eric could play the game with her and move it away from a customer that was, you know, maybe getting a little heated. So that was kind of her role in the whole in the whole operation. But they, you know, they traveled with the carnival and wherever they would go, they would find all kinds of they find all kinds of trouble to get into. You know, there are stories of of them driving a stolen car back from from the Iowa State Fair and driving around (laughs) town for a couple of weeks and then. Once they were done with it, they just pushed it into the lake, off a cliff into the lake. It's somewhere on the bottom of Lake <laughs> Hamilton to this day. You know, so they were they were a wild pair. And yeah, I mentioned in the piece that at one point Eric murders another carney. And uh he goes to, you know, he gets arrested for this. He goes to jail. And I don't get too deep into this into the piece, but it's a good story, so I'll tell it here. He um he actually asked my dad, you know, he didn't have any money when he went to jail and needed to raise some money for the lawyer. And so he told my dad to find this guy out at the racetrack that he knew. And he said, when you find him, tell him that I need a horse. And so what that meant was that he needed a sure thing. Like this guy that he sent my dad to talk to was a guy who knew when the fix was in. And so my dad goes and finds this guy and he says, I don't have one for you now, but I'll call you when I have a horse for you. This is like in the early 80s. And he eventually calls my dad and he tells him, I've got a horse for you. And so my dad and all of his friends, like, I mean, my dad pawns everything he can, you know, he's selling his hunting rifles and anything he can get his hands on wedding rings whatever to put together enough scratch and he takes all of eric's money and he bets on this horse and of course it wins he wins a ton of money and he gives it all to the lawyer and then the witness in the case disappeared and never showed up and so the, the charges were dropped and eric got out of jail and so the story is that you know most of that money went to the witness so that she would skip town uh-huh. And that's how Eric got out of jail <laughs> and didn't go to jail for murder. Um, and that's just the carny life. What can I tell you? That's that's how it worked out there. Yes. Yes. And is it is it sad that it's going away? We'll get to that later. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, we're talking about, you know, earlier you were talking about sort of like eventualities, sort of facts of life. And one of the facts of life, I would argue, is marks, right? Because, you know, that's one place where this story intersects with another one of your interests, which is gambling. And mm-hmm. you have a podcast called Gamblers, which tells the story of extraordinary gamblers who are just are incredible at the various games they choose to play. And the idea of a mark seems to be important to your sense of what's special about the carnival experience. So do we go for the joy of being hustled or is it something else? I think so. You know, one of the things, these kinds of games like the Razzle are long gone from Midways. You know, once upon a time, Midways were kind of open air casinos where people played all kinds of kind of rigged, you know, thimble rigged games for money. And uh, those types of operations, they started to give most carnivals a bad name. You know, they'd fleece a whole town. And so the towns wouldn't let the carnival come back the next year. So they kind of disappeared over time. There are still some of these types of games around the country, but what took their place in some ways was no different and no better, right? Like today, when you go to a carnival, you're going to spend whatever. If you spent $5 playing a game and you win a stuffed animal, the the fix, <laughs> right, is that the stuffed animal cost a nickel and you paid $5 for it. 
And so in this way, it's no different than when you go to Walmart, right? Or buy something on Amazon. So do we still enjoy it? Of course. You know, everybody loves the thrill of like trying to knock down the milk bottle or whatever the hell they're doing. You know, it's part of the atmosphere. It's part of what people have come to do. And they don't, they've accepted the bargain of, uh, you know, I'm going to pay for the ability to try to do this and then I'll, I'll get this worthless stuffed animal as like my trophy or whatever. So we've just replaced this sort of like rigged casino with this like a rummage sale type, you know, <laughs> this like capitalist retail operation. And I think that it's probably more fun. It's more fun to quote unquote win, you know, whatever, like a Rasta banana stuffed animal than it is to, you know, feel like you got ripped off when you go to the store and buy something and it breaks a couple of days later. I don't know why, but it does. It, it Because the value isn't baked into the thing and what you paid for. The value is in the experience that you had getting it. And I think that's what carnies understand kind of innately is that it's all a show. You know, that's what they call it. Everybody, the, 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 the carnival, it's a show and they're putting on a show and they're tearing down the show and they're moving the show from town to town. The rides, the food, the games, everything, it's part of the show. And I think they understand that people are coming out for the show and all of the, all that goes into that. So the experience is what people are buying into. And I think there's something kind of noble about that. Right. And I guess, how do you, how do you spot a mark <laughs> in, your, in your daily life? Well, I don't know if you know the etymology of the, the term mark. But please, <laughs> in the old days, what they would, what Eric and Hazel would do is they would literally take a piece of chalk, and if there was somebody who was a soft touch, somebody who was kind of a sucker that was, you know, <laughs> willingly parting with their money, they would mark the, their back with a piece of chalk, and that way, as that person strolled up and down the midway all night long, all the other carnies would see that that's the that's the person you want to reel into your game. They were, you know, they were literally marked. How do you spot a mark today? I don't know. I mean. The thing about the carnival today is that, you know, carnivals typically play very rural areas, right? It's still a, an important facet of life in rural America where people are more kind of spread out and isolated from each other and and don't have access to a lot of like whatever, like nightlife and entertainment or even, you know, opportunities to kind of get together as a community. This is why county fairs, you know, county fairs are more than just rides and stuff like that they often have livestock shows as part of the fair right so it's an opportunity for people that make their living farming to bring out their prize livestock and show them off and whatnot and so i think part of the idea here with with the kind of old school stereotypical carnival hustler was that these people were also rubes right that if somebody is that somebody lives kind of in rural america they are not someone they're you know they're they're going to be slower on the uptake and easier to hustle i don't think that's so true today as it may have been you know, in the last century. I think that, you know, obviously people are much more connected to each other than ever before in history. So I think marks are maybe fewer and farther between than they were once upon a time. And just because somebody lives in a rural area today doesn't mean that they're necessarily a simpleton or somebody that's easily hustled. Right. And I think also there has been perhaps to cite another dear author that appeared in Harper's Magazine, Richard Hofstadter, there is a certain paranoia in American life that is it's always been kind of an undercurrent. And now it's it's kind of it's ratcheting up just a bit, I would say. Sure, <laughs> say. Sure. So there's there's this kind of fear. There is an awareness not only of like, hey, maybe when you go to the carnival, you might maybe not everyone's entirely trustworthy, but also just <laughs> in general, there's a sense of like when you go out into the world, you might meet some dishonest people. 
which is sad, I think, you know, you should always go into certain, you know, a situation with an open mind and not necessarily judge people. However, there's a truth to it. And people, I guess, are kind of leaning into that more than they have in the past, unfortunately. Yeah, I think people do have this kind of in, in, innate skepticism of any time that you're putting up money, that you're being hustled, right? This idea of like, well, what's in it for you? Or, you know, how are you getting over on me here? And I think that's maybe the starting, that's the starting proposition nowadays rather than one of trust. But what's interesting is that that, that skepticism, that natural skepticism people have, it does it I don't think that it necessarily bleeds over into kind of the other forms that the carnival takes for people, right? Like like for example, the sideshow that I was with, like the performances that they were putting on, a more cynical person, you know, maybe a more <laughs> urbane person. I don't know. Somebody might come to that show and think I know this is obvious. I know how you did that or where's what's the trick or this isn't very good. But I found that the people that came to the shows wanted to be fooled, wanted to be entertained, wanted to be amazed and were willing to, you know, suspend disbelief and allow themselves to kind of get into it and be a part of the show. And in that sense, they were kind of dropping that skepticism and that cynicism and saying, I'll go with this. You know, I'll, I'll roll with this. I'm going to I'm going to have fun and let these people on stage entertain me. And I thought that was very refreshing. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the freak show. And of course, that's an integral part of sort of our idea of carnivals and the American carnival itself. So, you know, in the middle of the century, as American cultural sensitivities changed, these freak shows or natural born acts came to be replaced by working acts. So instead of someone who maybe was born with a physical deformity, who, by the way, may have really liked being in a sideshow because they could support themselves and not be consigned to like a very miserable life, you know, just sort of locked away somewhere. Again, not saying everybody felt that way. However, going to throw that out there. Mm -hmm. You know, it, we moved away from that to, you know, stuff like sword swallowing, stage magic, fire eating stuff. So could you talk more about that transition, both in terms of what precipitated it and how it changed the evolution of American carnivals? Yeah, the sideshow was the stars of the sideshow were natural born acts for a long time. And these acts often were like like you described people who had physical conditions that i think made some of the performances they did that much more amazing right so they were doing things that even you know people who were differently able would have a hard time performing but because but they were performing them un, given whatever sort of physical restrictions they had and that made the show even more incredible and i think that's important distinction because it wasn't just that people came to the sideshow or the freak show to gawk at somebody and say, look at this person and look at what they look like. It was that they were often doing an act, you know, that was pretty stupendous, you know, and I think that that was a part of what the show was. But yeah, over time, different states and cities started to adopt laws outlawing these kinds of shows. And Ward Hall, who I talk about in the piece, was kind of a, you know, he was like the king of <laughs> these sideshows and he fought some of these in court and really tried to take on these laws wherever he could. Eventually, as it just not only became kind of banned in a lot of places by law, but just kind of fell out of fashion, right? People grew kind of uncomfortable with the whole practice of it, for good reason. Then these shows started to replace them with uh, working acts. And working acts are more like performances that anybody could learn to do with practice, but were still 
pretty wild and often people use their bodies in these working acts in ways that were kind of wild, right? Like sword swallowing or whatever that were still all the more mind-blowing. What I learned about working acts that I thought was kind of cool was that it's very rare that there's a person who just does one act and that's their act. A lot of these performers know them all or know a lot of these acts. And that's kind of, and, and that really is, you know, there's a lot of utility in that because when you go to the show, you know, I tell the story in the piece about the the knife throwing act where the woman gets stabbed by the knife that he misses and he impales her. And so somebody else has to step in and take over. There was a lot of that that went on. I even saw it when I was on the road with them where whatever may happen, somebody might have to step in and say, okay, well now you're going to do the blockhead and you can walk on the swords. And everybody knew how to do all this stuff. And if you didn't know how, they would do skill sharing. So in the day when the before the carnival opened, the performers would all get under the tent and they'd do some skill sharing and they would teach each other things. So they would kind of pass these crafts on <laughs> to each other so that everybody kind of knew all the different acts. There are still, you know, one of the at one of our stops, we had somebody who came to perform one of the shows who was kind of a natural born act, this guy who called himself John T. Rex. And he performed these kinds of stage illusions and tricks that he had learned to do. He could do whip cracking and he had had these other things that he did. But he had, you know, he had very short arms, which is why he called himself that. And and he had been doing sideshow work his entire life. And he felt very passionate about the world of the sideshow as a place where he could where he sort of felt kind of accepted and felt at home. And I think he kind of would take umbrage at this idea that there was something wrong with him performing in that way. But obviously, it's a complicated issue. And it's also one that clearly, I think, has been <laughs> adjudicated by the public at large because these shows are long gone, as are the, uh, the I talk in the piece about the, the, the freak baby shows, the like baby in a jar shows, which also were huge hits. You know, when they started doing these shows where you would just pay to go into a, a room and look at all these like kind of weird fetuses and, and, and babies and jars of formaldehyde, those shows were massive hits, huge money makers for Ward Hall. And those got shut down quick. In fact, I think Chris goes to jail or gets arrested in one in Florida for for showing one of these. And they were much quicker to shut those things down too. But what was interesting to me was how people were so drawn to it. It was such a big moneymaker. People loved going to these things and 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 being horrified by these, which most of the a lot of the displays were fake. You know what I mean? It was just like bogus or whatever. But it just it's sort of a glimpse into our messed up minds, you know? <laughs> well, I you know, I think like the Mutter Museum. Yeah. And Philly, like that's, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I go, you know, I've only been there once, but when I went, I was just, you know, seeing like syphilitic skulls, seeing a whole wall of syphilitic skulls and being like, wow, I'm really glad I'm alive right now. Yeah. No In doubt. a time where there's antibiotics, we have a pretty good grasp on science and, you know, other, you know, skeletons or sort of things there, babies born with certain birth defects or or I don't know. I don't want to call them sessions. They're they're humans, right? Right. So there's there's this whole this whole sort of like push and pull and sort of you get to see something that you don't see every day and also sort of get to feel a different relationship to your own body. Perhaps. Right. And then also know that if someone was born with a certain birth defect today, it wouldn't be life ending. They could have a a normal life. They would not be sort of consigned to this they wouldn't have to be in a jar, right? There are all these kind of negotiations when you're looking 
at anything, but especially in a in a carnival situation. There's all these different negotiations and like yeah, it's not so black and white. Absolutely. I think is perhaps reformers who were probably coming in and being like, "Hey, you shouldn't just sort of like abuse this person who is disabled and take all of their money and sort of, you know, just throw them on stage or abuse it because that also happened too, right? It wasn't it wasn't <laughs> all totally nice. Like, you know, Elephant Man, of course, classic right. example of this horrors of the, the natural born acts. But it's still it's like the idea that there's at least an option for people to pursue that if they want to, ultimately a good thing. Yeah, I mean Tommy, the way he books his the way he runs his show is that every sort of jump that he makes, every town that he goes to, he kind of has a Rolodex of performers he knows in that area who he'll call and see if they can show up and be a part of the show. But he's all, a lot of times acts come to him and find him. And, you know, he told me sto- a story about being in one town and a guy comes up to him and says, I have a friend you have to meet. He doesn't have any legs. He's awesome. You'll love him. And Tommy's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll meet him. You know, but Tommy, I think assumed that I'm not going to put a guy in the show just because he doesn't have legs. But then when he met the guy, the guy could do so many incredible things. And he desperately wanted to be in the show. And they put him in the show and he was like this star, this huge hit. And he moved on from their show. And now he kind of has his own show that he does all on his own. So, you know, it was good that there was this outlet for him to show up at and get a start at something that he thought he could do to perform for folks. And and so I think that's more kind of how it happens today, too, where there still are natural born acts out there. So... Maybe we should go back a little bit and talk about the connection between the American Carnival and the 1893 World Fair. Like, what was the, you know, how did this chocolate and peanut butter meet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the World's Fair had all these, you know, it it went on for months, right? It wasn't like a, you know, like a week-long fair. It went on for months and months. It was like a city that was built in Chicago with all these exhibitors from around the world and it was really kind of a it was a real what to do it was not a carnival right it was not even really a fair in the way that we think of a fair today but all around the outskirts of the fair on the outside of the gates were a lot of like kind of two-bit exhibitors who couldn't get in on the exposition who set up their own operations outside the grounds of the uh, Chicago World's Fair and kind of put on a bit of a, a more of a body show, right? Like outside of the grounds that you, you could find what they called, you know, they had like whatever belly dancers, which was really kind of like the burlesque back then. You know, they had uh, they had gambling games. They had, you know, uh, freak shows, whatever. All the stuff that, they, that you couldn't get inside the <laughs> exhibition. When the exhibition was over, a lot of these folks thought, you know what? We made a lot of money. We should keep it going. We should move to the next town. And this was the birth of the traveling carnivals. So it all started there, right? The the sort of uh, event of the ex- Chicago exhibition, or I guess they called it the Columbia ex- exhibition, birthed the traveling carnival in the United States. And from there, a lot of these different kind of shows put together little companies and started touring. And it just grew from there. Right. And I mean, is that is that where, again, this idea of we're not good enough to be inside, so we're outside, <laughs> but we're outside together. Like this real, the notion of like the Carney Code and this this real camaraderie among people who were part of these traveling groups. Again, I'm sort of thinking of Nightmare Alley where it is this real sort of sense of like us against the world. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the outside world is you need it, but also it's hostile to you and you should be hostile to it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an outsider culture, you know, very outlaw kind of culture that 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 put on these shows. But even though the initial carnivals were kind of outsiders, even within the world of traveling carnivals, there was sort of an outside inside relationship too, right? Where some carnivals tried to put on, you know, whatever Sunday school kind of family friendly shows, and other traveling carnivals were really trying to show up in towns and give people what what they you know what they couldn't get kind of otherwise, right? Like a more of a body show, more like, I mean, in the early days, there were even these shows that would come through town that really all the show was, was a bar. Like they would put up a tent where they'd have beer and people would come and drink beer and get drunk and there'd be fights and stuff. And it was like, they were just essentially a traveling bar that would (laughs) open up on the outskirts of town so that people could come and drink beer. So, you know, all, all the sort of like taboo things that people in in sort of spread out in across America and rural America couldn't get, they could get when the, when the show rolled through town. And so there was even this tension. There's always been a tension between the types of shows and what was, what was the right kind of show to give people and what wasn't. And at the same time, there was the circus. And so there was also this kind of competition with the circus too. Um, Mm -hmm. Where there was definitely never any exploitation happening at the circus (laughs) either. Right. Right. But, you know, a lot of people conflate the circus and the carnival in their mind in America, I think. But they were very distinct entities and very different businesses and different groups of people and families that were running these different operations. And in a lot of ways were, you know, in some ways they they were competitors. Well, how I mean, would you elaborate those differences? It sounds like there's kind of it's not just what was on offer. It's kind of like a mindset. It's kind of a different business practices, let's say. Yeah, I mean, the the form of the circus is pretty, you know, I mean, is well, sort of well known to people, right? It was pretty much like there's a tent and there's a performance, that, there's a number of performances that go on in this tent, right? So there'd be like trained animals or, you know, acrobatics, clowning, and they would put on that show and then they'd pack it up on the train and they'd head out, you know, the next town. And that's what the circus did. And so the carnival was kind of a much different experience, right? It was It was basically creating in your community for maybe even a week at a time, this kind of festival, this bacchanal, you know, where where people could come out and socialize and eat and be on rides and have a good time and do things they'd never done before and experience things they'd never experienced before. And yeah, there were performances too, but that was just a that was one part of it. So the carnival in some ways was a much more all-inclusive exp- <laughs> experience for folks and, you know, really modeled, I mean, the whole word carnival, right? I mean, it was really modeled on this idea of these festivals that have gone on all the way from like whatever Saturnalia and like these, you know, like I mentioned before, Bacchanal, like this, this idea that like, okay, for this one week, we're going to kind of turn all the rules on their head and we're just going to let loose. And that's what I think the carnival, it was a version of that, maybe a much more tame one than whatever, like orgies and and, uh, (laughs) and, and, and violence and whatnot. But like, you know, it was still like this idea that we're going to we're going to let loose a little bit and again in that time and place in America where people were so isolated from each other it served an important purpose and an important function and in some places in America today still serves that function right i mean i almost want to keep talking about that sense of inversion and how liberatory it is i mean 
in today's world where there's not even sex in movies because you can just get on your phone and look up, you know, find pornography like in three seconds. Like it's not certain things are no longer unique. Breaking certain taboos are no longer hard to do. Right. You don't have to do a lot of legwork. So what does that release or th sort of that inversion look like today or sort of kind of doing the opposite of the norm? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't think that where the carnival has utility today in American like uh, rural life, it doesn't serve that function anymore. So like the Atwood Tri-County Fair that I write about in the piece, you know, that was a very rural area. But that carnival, that fair that we had was fairly tame. You know, I mean, the wildest thing going on was like Tommy's show or wrestling that was, you know, amateur wrestling going on or like Daredevil motorcycle guys but beyond that you know and, and maybe a few like kind of crooked carny games they were, they were there was nothing you know that taboo going on the function that that carnival and that fair played in that community was bringing people together and and serving as sort of this social connective tissue for people that lived in those three counties and so in that sense it's much more you know it, it doesn't really it doesn't have that same flavor that maybe it had, <laughs> you know, 50, 60 years ago, where it was a place where people could come out and be exposed to all kinds of idea, new ideas and, <laughs> and maybe, you know, um, see something that was a little bit taboo or a little dirty or, you know, or maybe do a little gambling or, you, you know, take your sweetheart on the uh, tilt-a-whirl. One of the things I did learn while running this piece is that all the standard carnival rides, the tilt-a-whirl, the whip, you know, the scrambler, they were all designed, all the people that designed them, designed them thinking about how to press together the riders in the ride so that it would create some sort of sexual titillation. And that's why all these rides kind of move in that same kind of circular pattern, because in the early days of the carnival, in the design of these rides, that's what they were going for. They were trying to get couples smushed together because they thought that's what couples were doing at the carnival. That's why they went. <laughs> And we still ride those rides today. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, again, going back to like the World's Fair, the 1893 World's Fair, just the idea that men and women would be in public together, so close together like that, mm -hmm. was pretty novel. And yeah. even just like going on dates as opposed to courting, right? This, all of this stuff was very new and exciting. Well, the, the biggest, the biggest, most popular exhibits at that fair were these exhibits where women performed belly dances from different places around the world but really the reason they were so exciting was because women like you know kind of gyrating in that way was something people had never seen before it was like the cultural aspect of it gave cover to the sexual undertones you know that, that people really wanted to go to this show to ogle them but it was it, it was all okay because what we were really doing was we were exhibiting a foreign kind of exotic form of dance right and of course there's all the hypersexualization and you know orientalism and all yes. these different things you could see all this stuff sort of bubbling up again uh but it is yes on the other hand like as bad as those sorts of projections are to put on someone or someone from another culture there might have not been like a truth to that culture exchange but ch there was a societal change that again i don't think you could entirely say is or you could you could say is entirely bad there was but often there was no real cultural exchange happening at all because some of these shows around the country were the the people performing in them were not from the countries that they claimed to be from. Sometimes they weren't even from another country. And sometimes the 
the country or the culture was completely made up or like an invention or fabrication. There were a lot of those kinds of shows too. That also ex- happened in, you know, this is a thing P.T. Barnum was famous for doing too, where he would bring whatever, like pygmies, you know, these pygmy shows where he would just find people and he would make up some country they were from and invent this whole, you know, like that, that was a part of the culture of these traveling shows too, was like a fake science or a fake history or fake, you know what I mean? Like that just sort of going out there and teaching people something that was completely bogus. Right. The mermaids, like all this sort of stuff. Right. And I mean, P.T. Barnum, really one of the worst people (laughs) to have ever lived. Like it's it's crazy that they made that movie, like the world's greatest showman about him. It's just like, oh my God. Like, really? But everyone can look at that Wikipedia article on their own time. I, I would love to hear more about the labor that actually goes into the carnival because there are all these terms, you know, sort of insider knowledge that must be passed along and shared out of necessity, you know, as you were talking before, sort of like skill sharing. And it's, again, it's a unique sort of work environment to be in as opposed to something like an office where everyone is kind of segmented and doing their own thing and off in their own little world, perhaps. And this is just where everybody, everybody's doing everything. And you really, again, it's about this connectivity. Well, I mean, the labor in these traveling shows is often a combination of folks who are working on visas, you know, who are from Mexico usually, but sometimes from Central America and other countries, or people who are maybe citizens, but are for whatever personal reasons, trying to kind of stay off the radar, you know, stay off the grid, right? Because when you travel with these shows, people are given, often given room and board, right? There are these trailers, bunkhouses that people can stay in. And the conditions aren't great, you know, but it's a place, a warm place to sleep at night. And so people work the, the show, they, they sleep in the bunks houses and they kind of travel with the show and they get paid at the end of the week and they don't have that money they get paid goes in their pocket. They don't have to pay it rent. They don't have to pay utilities, you know, because they're living on the show. And so I think that appeals to some people who are trying to have, not have a fixed address. <laughs> right. And so that's, I think the two types of folks primarily who are traveling throughout the year with these shows. And I mentioned this in the piece, but one interesting thing is that a lot of the labor on these shows comes from, a lot of it comes from one town. There's one city in Mexico that provides quite a few workers where the, where labor agents kind of go down there and recruit people to come out and work, work on carnival operations. And the whole, like the whole city, everyone does it. You know, it's like all these families, it's like a big part of life there that everybody travels to the United States and, and works in these carnivals for a certain number of months every year. And there's like a direct pipeline. And it all kind of started because somebody knew somebody. And then that person said, I'll bring some more people. And the next thing you know, the whole damn town was kind of involved in it. But but these labor brokers are a big part of how these carnival, a lot of these outdoor amusement companies are able to function today. They have a really difficult time finding labor. So they work with workers that are here on temporary visas. And it's all very, you know, I find I found it all to be very complex and and fascinating. They are one of the major kind of industries in the United States that's lobbying pretty hard to increase the number of visiting workers that we can bring in every year. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, it is, it seems like the majority of these foreign workers are on H2B visas, Mm -hmm. which are non-immigrant, non-agricultural visas. I mean, why do you, I mean, obviously you've, there is a reason, you know, some, somewhere, sometime, way back when some guy or 
or woman from Salpayucan went to join the carnival. And then uh, they brought more of their family and they brought their friends. And, they, and, and now this this town of like 60,000 people provides like two thirds of the labor for all these different traveling carnivals. Right. But why is there such a disinterest, I guess? I don't know. I don't know how to ask this question like, and not sound like I'm like a Republican or I'm like going to like say like no more immigrants. But it's, you know, why is there such a lack of interest for people who are who live in the United States, especially because carnivals have such like a mystique and kind of fun mythos around them now? Well, the work is, look, it ain't sexy. I mean, it's, I, you know, I was doing it. It's, it's, it's really hard. And again, you have to live on the road, right? I mean, the way that Tommy and Luella live on the road is in a big RV, but the way that a lot of the folks that were that sort of put these rides together and stuff live on the road is in these these kind of really not very <laughs> not very comfortable bunkhouses. It's not a fun way to live. Or it's not very comfortable, and I think that that combined with how little these jobs pay, and I think that's the thing that is important to mention here is that. We're talking about a job that's that's very physically demanding and pay sometimes less than ten dollars an hour, sometimes less than that, because the whole idea of hourly pay kind of goes out the window when you realize that you're living here at work. You don't, you know what I mean? You're there all the time. You may not always be carrying heavy iron around, but you ain't going nowhere else either. You're there, and so in that sense, how do you really qualify? You know, what's your when are you working and when are you not? So you're living on the road sometimes for you know, whatever, nine months on the road, living in these bunkhouses, putting together the show, tearing down the show. And your wages are not very much. So a lot of these companies will, t- will, will charge you for the, you know, they'll dock your pay for the uh, food that you ate or for the, you know, for the bunkhouses sometimes. And so the pay's pretty low. And so that's another reason why workers are coming from other countries where the dollar, you know, the exchange rate is more favorable to them than it is here. So you know, I, I think that it's it's not just that the work is hard. I think that it's also that the work is not being paid fairly. And so and you can look across the country at a lot of the different industries that are that are using a lot of H1 and H2B visa workers from, you know, Mexico and Central America is that it's because they they're paying them so little money, but the exchange rate is more favorable for them back in their home countries. So it's exploitive. I mean, it's it's, it's I think it's exploitive. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it. it is. And I don't think people realize that that sort of labor or that, you know, that very low paid exploitative labor is why things are relatively inexpensive. And in that right. if if everybody there was getting paid a uh, living wage, it, it, you know, it would I think there's I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine told me there was like this one restaurant in Brooklyn that paid like fair, fair living wage to everybody top top to bottom and so like a sandwich would be 42 dollars right because that's right. what that's the actual value of that sandwich I, I i i sort of i tried to make this point subtly in the piece but you know when tommy hired people to help him out and we were in louisiana because we didn't have our crew with us he paid everybody 15 bucks an hour and he had folks show up and they would have worked all day for 15 bucks an hour you know what i mean they wanted when we were done they were like what else can i do for you but once we were done they all kind of discussed, well, should we stay and work the carnival? But the thing is, the carnival wasn't going to pay anywhere. You know, any of the jobs they could have got on the carnival weren't going to pay anywhere near 15 bucks an hour. So they all split. And so I was trying to kind of make this subtle point that like Tommy was paying folks 
what was considered, you know, they, they, it was, he was paying better than any of the, any of the other options that were there on the carnival. And that's why folks that were there split. And I think that for a lot of these operators, if they were, if they were paying 15 bucks an hour to all the folks that sort of travel with them on the road, they probably wouldn't be able to squeeze out a profit at the end of the year, or they wouldn't be able to, you know, they wouldn't be able to function the way that they do. And it would probably put a lot of places out of business. So the other sort of thing that sucks about this whole equation is that these companies depend on exploiting the labor in order to stay in, stay in business. And so something's got to change. Like you, you mentioned the $42 sandwich. I mean, in, in this case, it would be like, I don't know, people would be paying like whatever, like Disney World prices to ride on those rickety rides. So, you know, that's, that's why when you go to the carnival, you're getting such a good value for your, <laughs> for your entertainment dollar. It's, you know, that's the hidden secret there is that there's, there's some exploited labor behind the scenes. Yeah. That's true. That's capitalism, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, it is. Again, would it matter if I had to buy a $42 sandwich every day if my wages were higher? Like, again, this right. wouldn't be so ridiculous. Again, there's there's all these different sort of economic considerations that I don't know, those clowns in Washington need to figure out. Uh, terrible. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but But another reason why I think a guy like Tommy you know, it's not like he could afford to pay everybody 15 bucks an hour because he was raking in the money. It's because he's, you know, Tommy, to me, he was not really a capitalist. I mean, this is a guy who he lives for this shit. You know what I mean? Like to him, if he can just make enough money at the end of the year to keep the show going, that's his mission in life is to keep the show on the road. And I really do think that he was a rare person in that sense, that he is not, he was not motivated by money. And he just, he's sort of bought in fully to this culture and this, this tradition. And he sees himself, and I think rightfully so, as kind of a protector of it. And so, yeah, he was willing to pay them 15 bucks because he thought that was a fair wage and because he's not worried really too much about how much profit can I make at the end of the year. I mean, this guy, he's not trying to get rich on this thing. He's just trying to keep the show going. And that's the life he wants. Right. And I guess, were there any sort of other... I mean, obviously, the the whole piece has some pretty great stories about him. But was there anything about Tommy that you ended up having to cut or not include? Because again, he 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 is, as you say, he is a totally compelling character because he is his love of the game is so pure. Yeah, I mean, there were there were a lot of great stories about Tommy, and you know, I do I do think he was a fascinating person and you know, kind of an artist. But I'm not sure if. I, I feel like I'm on the spot. I don't know. I can't think of anything that like maybe di didn't make the cut that I would have wanted to put in there. But I do think that it was interesting watching him wrestle with this. The, the sort of one of the, the through lines in the piece is this this memory act that he's trying to conquer that through the whole thing, you know, through the whole tour, he really struggled with. And I had to kind of, you know, I went to more cities than I ended up writing about. I had to condense it. You know what I mean? And but I hope that he didn't mind me showing kind of the. uh you know, how the sausage was made there. And, and, but I thought it was fascinating to see him really take on this new performance and struggle with it and fail and fail until he was able to finally get it and to really see him hone his craft that way. I don't know. I felt privileged that I got to kind of peek in on that. And there were other people that we, you know, every city we went to, I met a new group, sort of new cast of characters. But again, because of word count, I couldn't really introduce them all to the readers. But I felt like every city we went to was a whole nother piece that I could have written just about the life of this, of each person that I met along the way and how they got involved in 
sideshow and 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 carnivals and in renaissance fairs some of them performed at renaissance fairs and things like that all these folks that are part of tommy's world are all just like absolutely fascinating people they're all artists and their art their craft is just such a niche kind of weird unique thing that has one place in <laughs> in our culture and it's in it's in this you know this outdoor carnival a place that is shrinking and shrinking from our lives, you know? And I thought that was just, I don't know, completely fascinating to me. Yeah, no, it, it is. And it, it certainly, there is something kind of romantic about the the notion that there's really only one thing you can do. And it's this very rarefied thing, but it takes a tremendous amount of skill and you kind of put yourself through hell to do it, but you <laughs> right. can't do anything else because you, you know, you can't, you can't be like, well, okay, yeah, I'll go, Go work at Kinko's. Like that's not you just that's not in the cards for you. You have to go. You have to pursue what you love, and that's I don't know. That's true, but that, but the the other thing that struck me about these performances is that they could do something else. Like they all were such skilled performers, right? I mean, they could have they could have used these skills to been actors or you know whatever musicians or you know there's a lot of different ways that they could have taken to the stage and performed for people. There was definitely some real serious chops that they had that I could see them applying in different ways if they had any aims towards being famous or something. But none of these folks wanted to be famous. You know what I mean? They wanted, or at least they wanted to be famous only within this one kind of specific context. And I thought that was very, that was very cool. Yeah. What do you think the future holds for both the World of Wonders, which is Tommy's outfit, and for the American Midway carnivals in general? I don't know. I worry about it. I, I definitely worry about it. I think that, you know, I do think that it's impressive that COVID didn't completely destroy this, you know, put a lot of these companies out of business and that they were able to sort of weather through the last couple of years and get back on the road. But yeah, I do worry that like, I mentioned the piece that like there's fewer and fewer county fairgrounds around the country. Those are disappearing. So that means that fairs are also disappearing. And I know in my hometown in Arkansas, we lost our county fairgrounds and so now when the fair comes through town they have to have it in like a parking lot and and i think that that the fewer places that there are that have these kinds of shows the fewer companies there will be to to do them i mean a lot of states have state fairs which are often very big what to do's but state you know but the thing is only the big players get to play the state fairs you know so the industry will sort of see more of the smaller companies disappear and the big players will be the ones that do all these big spots Having grown up in Iowa, the Iowa State Fair, it's like you're getting people who the the big the big acts are people who were on the radio 20 years ago who had like a one hit wonder. So it's a it's a very diminished like between the choice of like Evanescence and somebody who's like putting nails up their nose. Obviously, you know which way I'm going to go. It's sad. <laughs> it's sad that you know that choice is being taken away from us because again because of capital, but. But it is. This is why yeah. I think World of Wonders has more staying power because they're the only ones doing it. All the other companies have fallen, so there's just World of Wonders, and he's out there doing it. And as I think, as long as Tommy, you know, as long as Tommy Breen has blood in his veins and you know air in his lungs, then the World of Wonders is going to go out the next season. And I think that you know, hopefully, as he gets older, he'll find some protege of his own to keep the show going. But I think the World of Wonders will always find a patch of dirt or asphalt to throw their tent up and put on their show as long as that guy's breathing. But they just need to have, you know, as long as folks are willing to have them and that people are still willing to, you know, interested in this form of entertainment. And honestly, I think people will will be because 
what I saw when I was on the road with these guys was town after town, people would walk by this, this banner line in this tent and they would look at it and kind of cock their heads out of curiosity and sort of, you know, begrudgingly walk in thinking like, what am I getting myself into? I'm going to stand next to the exit so that I can leave if this sucks or this is boring. And they would always just be sucked into the show. Right. And, and often just complete, like I said in the beginning, like really just give into it and say, you know what, I'm going to go with this. I'm going to have fun here. And so it works. Their show works. And I think that as long as they can get their show up and in front of people, they'll keep, they'll keep going. Wow. Inspirational words from David Hill. <laughs> <laughs> I was inspired. Well, yeah, it is. It is great. Yeah. Tommy inspired me. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times has called us America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org slash save to subscribe for only 1697.